0: So, good morning. Thank you for having me. I, it's my great privilege this morning to be able to bring us home in this Jonah series and, and kind of tie everything together. And, and it's pretty wonderful what we've seen so far, and, and I'm looking forward to, to you know, pulling it together for us today. So our theme has been Mighty and Merciful. I never asked John what he was getting at with that theme. I assume that's in reference to God's character, not Jonah's. Um, correct? Yes. yes. And God is indeed mighty and merciful. Um, If you've been here over the last three weeks, I hope you've seen that come through just so strongly. You know, God's grace is just everywhere you turn in this book. Firstly, for the people of Nineveh, sure. They were so far from him. They were in absolute opposition uh, to him. They had earned his right judgment, but he overflowed for them in mercy. But not just them. It doesn't stop there. The pagan sailors in chapter 1. God sends them a wayward prophet and turns them. He turns them from their pointless pleas to worthless idols to the worship of the God of heaven and earth. It seems like God really went out of his way uh, to reach them. But maybe most of all, I think, we can see God's grace here for Jonah himself. Why should God persist with such a disobedient prophet why not just raise up another but you see God is not merely working through Jonah he's working in Jonah and I want you to see that he's working also in you and I today Um, because God doesn't just work through his messenger he's also working in his messenger My line today that I'm gonna keep coming back to over and over is that God is gracious and merciful. And he wants us not just to receive that grace and mercy, but to be transformed by it and to overflow in it. What do I mean by that? Well, God's grace saves us, sure. But it shouldn't just be to deliver us from the penalty of sin and death. God doesn't want us just to enjoy his grace. He wants us to be changed by it so that our hearts would be more like his. And then he wants us to overflow in that mercy and grace to a world that needs it so much. The first thing I I want us to really dive into today is, is just a stark contrast that the beginning of this chapter sets up here between God's grace on the one hand and Jonah's anger on the other. At the end of chapter three, the people of Nineveh repent, and God relents of his anger, overflowing with mercy for them. This is good news, right? But Jonah is furious. Let's have a look at um, verse two here, chapter four. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's what Jonah had to say to God about this. You can hear the indignation in his voice. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I can almost imagine it like this. Look, I knew you'd go and do something like this. That's why I ran away to begin with. This is just like you. And, and it is just like him. Thank God that it is. Let's look more closely at the words of his accusation, though, because this is, Jonah levels these words, um, these almost wonderful words about God as an accusation. I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Those sound familiar from somewhere else? Well, they're essentially God's own words that he used to describe himself in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, if you wanted to look it up. So here's the scene. God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt against all odds. He's given them the Ten Commandments to show his people how he wants them to live. Now, by the time Moses has gotten back down the mountain um, with these um, Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, The people are neck deep in idolatry. They're actually worshipping a golden calf that they've made themselves with all the gold they've melted down that they took with them from Egypt. They're worshipping this golden calf and they're crediting it with having rescued them from Egypt. Now Moses, in his anger, destroys the tablets. Clearly to Moses, these tablets are no good for a people like this. They've got no interest in living how God wants them to live. So Moses, in his anger, destroys the tablets. But God, in his grace, makes them new ones. And hiding himself in a cloud reveals himself to Moses with these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who would by no means clear the guilty you see jonah here unwittingly makes a wonderful confession of god's character gracious merciful slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster this is good news for god's people in fact It is the reason he had persisted with him through centuries of unfaithfulness from the time of Abraham to the time of Jonah. In fact, this description of God's character is still the heart of the gospel today. And Jonah himself is a direct beneficiary of this good news. He even praises God for it after being rescued from drowning by the fish. In chapter 2, he declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. But as much as Jonah benefits from um, God's grace, today he does not find it to be good news. Today he is displeased exceedingly, we read. Let's have a look at that, those words, displeased exceedingly. Um, verse 1 there, the word displeased in Hebrew is ra'ah. Um, I don't want to make it sound like I know a lot of Hebrew words, um, including this one that I've studied this week. I'm up to about one that I've, I think I have a pretty solid grasp on. <laughs> ra'ah comes up over and over again in the book of Jonah. Um, and and often, actually, the word that is translated as is not displeased, but often the word it gets translated as is evil. Um, and um, the word evil there is used in... Um, with different feelings um, f- for the different parts it comes up as, um, in the different contexts, right? Uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Um, Let's cast lots, the sailors say. Let's cast lots and find out on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're asking, whose fault is it that this ra'ah has come upon us? Um, it's used as in the sense of meaning disaster there, right? Who's caused this disaster on us, this ra'ah? In chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The people of Nineveh, turned from their evil way. So it means something morally wrong. The people of Nineveh turned from their Ra'a way. Um, later on in that same verse, when it says God relented of the disaster, disaster there is Ra'ah, God relented of the Ra'a um, uh, that he had intended uh, towards the people of Nineveh. So this is the same word that is used when we hear that Jonah is exceedingly displeased. It seems to me that Jonah is not just unhappy. He actually considers this this turn of events to be morally wrong and a total disaster. And this is the accusation that he levels at God, that God here is causing a total disaster and and is wrong morally to have let these people off the hook. Um, Bible commentator Leslie C. Allen put it like this, and it's simple, and I think it really captures it. Bad behavior should lead to a bad end, and Jonah takes it very badly that it does not. That would be fair to say, wouldn't it? Maybe we feel like that sometimes ourselves, though, when, when we see people that we think are, are getting away with it. Um, The bad behaviour should lead to a bad end. And sometimes we take it badly, but it does not. So what a contrast we have here. God's grace and Jonah's anger. They they couldn't be further apart from each other. But in verse 4, God hears this anger. He hears the accusation in Jonah's voice. And in his grace, he persists with him. And he pulls him up on it. Asking this probing question, do you do well to be angry? And I wonder if that is a question that we should ask ourselves when we find ourselves confronted with anger, especially if we find ourselves on an occasion angry with God. Do you do well to be angry? So a bit of a side note here. I just wanted to look for a minute on how we rightly handle anger with God. I found it's quite common to hear people say things like, you've got to be honest with God, Darren. You you can't hide your anger from him. He sees everything. If you're feeling angry, then he wants to hear it. Just let him have it. He can take it. And I'm sure each of those things, or at least most of those things, are quite true in themselves. I bet God can take it. But I've never been quite comfortable with that. It's true that God knows my anger. It's true that I can't hide it from Him. But that's not the same as saying that my anger is right or that it's good for me to entertain it. Who am I to be angry with God? If I were to rebuke God, I could only do so with the breath that He has put in my lungs. So does my anger at God mean there's something wrong with God? Doesn't it rather... Mean that there's something wrong with me? I mean, there are all sorts of reasons that one might be angry. Uh, Many of them are good reasons, I would think. But if I find myself angry at God, then I don't need to blow off steam. I don't need to let him have it. I need his help. I need his mercy, his comfort. I need his touch to recreate me. Peter put it this way in First Peter chapter five. He said, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you." So if we find ourselves angry, especially angry with God, first we must ask, do you do well to be angry? And whatever the answer, let's bring it to God in humility, knowing that he cares for us. So why is Jonah angry here? It's because his heart is far from God's. You see, Jonah has been living under the blessing of God's grace, but now it's time for him to be transformed by that grace. Jesus kind of described it this way. Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 43 to 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jonah gets that, doesn't he? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, that is how God's heart beats. And God wants to work in Jonah here, that his would be transformed to be the same, that he might be a son of his father who is in heaven. And that's why he wants to work in us, that we may no longer be those who love their neighbor and hate their enemy, but that we might be sons of our Father who is in heaven. You see, God is gracious and he's merciful. He wants us not just to receive that grace, not just to enjoy that grace and that mercy. He wants us to be transformed by it. And he wants us to overflow into a world that just so desperately needs it. We've been looking at God being mighty and merciful, and I've focused so far on his mercy, but I want you to see his might as well. You see, when we read through this book, we see that God is over everything. And he's at work not just through the messenger, but in the messenger. I want us to take a minute to look at how God has just appointed each thing to happen, uh, to bring the people of Nineveh back to him, to bring the sailors back to him, uh, to bring Jonah back to him. In these first three chapters, we see God at work in everything. In chapter one, he appoints a prophet to bring his message to the people of Nineveh. He then brings a storm to humble his disobedient prophet. He then appoints an occasion for repentance and reverence in the hearts of pagan sailors who are now confronted with the impotence of their own idols. He then appoints a fish to rescue the wayward prophet and bring him home. Moving on to chapter 3, we see that God reappoints the prophet to bring his message. We see that God appoints a heart change in an entire city 120,000 people, all the way up to the king himself, who repents in sackcloth and ashes. You know, in, in chapter 3, in verse 5, um, it's interesting the way uh, that it words their heart change. See, it was Jonah who brought the message. They heard Jonah, but in verse 5 it says, they believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. And, you know, I think there, there's hope. There's hope for those who were converted or blessed by a dodgy evangelist. Maybe someone who's since disgraced themselves or maybe have left the faith entirely. That can be pretty discouraging. But if they said something that day that was true, something that showed you Christ and you believed, you heard them, but you believed God. Um, and it is God that is at work uh, when, uh, when people speak the name of Jesus. So I hope that can be some encouragement there. Back to God's appointments. In chapter 4 now, we see that God appoints a vine, a worm, and a wind. In verse 6, the sun is beating down on Jonah, and God appoints a plant to give Jonah shade in the heat of the day. In verses 7 and 8 then, an unexpected twist certainly for Jonah God appoints a worm to kill the plant and then a scorching wind to beat down on Jonah and draw out his hard heart towards the Ninevites. In verse 10 and 11, God has these words for Jonah. These words for Jonah. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hands from their left, and also much cattle? So through this book, I, I see this picture kind of unfold. I see we have arguably the worst evangelist of all time. There might be other contenders, but Jonah would have to be up there, right? Arguably the worst evangelist of all time, leading arguably the greatest revival of all time, right? 120,000 people. Then now we have God delivering to him, arguably the greatest object lesson of all time. You pity the plant which you didn't even plant. You didn't even tend it or make it grow. How much more uh, should I pity the people of Nineveh? You see, Jonah's heart is exposed here. We see, and I hope that he saw, that he cares more for a vine, a vine that he'd never even planted, than he thinks God should care for a city of people. A city of people made by God's own hands and made in God's own image. But the terrible sin of these 120,000 people of this great city is that to be simply overlooked. We We share Jonah's struggle here sometimes, right? Well, God isn't done with his appointments yet. You see, he didn't just appoint for them a messenger. He didn't just appoint for them a heart change. He appointed for them a saviour. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we read these words. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, God appointed his own son, Jesus Christ, to bear the weight of the sin. To pay for his pity on these people. are people that God describes as not knowing their right hand from their left. They're so deep in sin, they don't even know it. They don't even know what they're doing. It strikes me the similarity of these words to the words that Jesus uh, uses on the cross are uh, calling out to God in Luke 23 verse 34 Jesus offers this plea for the very people who are crucifying him Father forgive them for they know not what they do so God would recognize how lost people were and overflow with mercy even when their hands turned directly on him. Isn't that incredible? And you know, this is how God has reached out to each of us, people who were far from Him, who don't know their right hand from their left. But if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then it's also how He's reaching out to you today. You just need to stop, stop running and accept it as a wonderful gift. You see, all through this book, we see God's hand at work. Despite the failures of the messenger, and and they they were great, God's word will go out, and he will change hearts. But I want you to see also that God's not just working through the messenger. He's working in the messenger. You see, God wants Jonah not just to enjoy his mercy and grace, but to be transformed by it. To see God's image in the people of Nineveh. To see them as God himself does. And as God saw Jonah. And he wants the same for us today. Because again, God is gracious and merciful. He wants us not just to receive that grace and mercy. He wants us to be transformed by it. And to overflow in it. So I have a challenge now. Which beats within us? Are the heart of Jesus, or the heart of God, or the heart of Jonah? We know the gospel, right? We know that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all. But maybe sometimes we're enjoying what Colin Smith from the Unlocking the Bible Ministry calls the vine-centered life. We're enjoying God's blessings and his comforts. It's nice in the shade, right? We're okay just to sit back and and see what happens to everyone else like Jonah did. He went out from the city to watch and see what would happen. But in his mercy, sometimes God takes away the vine to show us that there is something more. Or maybe we still quietly see some people as just being beyond the hope of the gospel, or at least beyond our desire that they would find it. You see, Jonah hated the Ninevites, and we can be confident that it wasn't for nothing. After all, they were bad enough that God had deemed them right for judgment. In a sense, Jonah rightly judges that these people did not deserve God's mercy and grace, Right? To say that these people didn't deserve God's mercy and grace is true, but it betrays a misunderstanding of what God's mercy and grace is. They are by nature undeserved, and they have only ever been received by the undeserving. So, do we have people that we see like this? The especially unworthy? Yeah, you know, I know that I'm unworthy, but this guy's a whole nother category of unworthy, right? Yeah, you know, mass murderers, war criminals. you know, these people are just monsters. But what about ones closer to home, people who have wronged us, people who hate us, the people who speak badly about us down the street? How could God just let them off the hook, right? Maybe if we search deeply enough, we find that a little of the heart of Jonah still beats inside of us. So why should we even desire that such people be saved? I want to put to you today three pretty solid reasons why. For their benefit, for our own benefit, and for Christ's glory. Let's have a look. For their benefit first. This one's going to be pretty obvious. They're sinners who need a saviour. They need Jesus. Um, it's for their benefit that they would find his grace. But what about for your benefit? Why, uh, our benefit? Why is it for our benefit that these people would find uh, God's mercy and grace as undeserved as it is? Well, first, by us desiring that they would have mercy and grace We then find ourselves living in obedience to Jesus' command to forgive as we have been forgiven. Uh, Look at Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. um, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or check out his parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 if you want to see how desperately seriously God takes um, and Jesus takes the idea that we uh, would forgive as people who have been forgiven. It's also for our benefit uh, that we would desire that these people find God's mercy and grace because that would mean that God is changing our hearts to make them more like his. That we might be sons of our Father in heaven. I bet there are more, but the other thing that I thought of was that if that person was to find God's grace, God would make from them a brother or sister that you would be in perfect relationship with, praising Jesus side by side with for eternity. That would be pretty wonderful. But I think most importantly, we should desire that these people be saved for Christ's glory. In Luke chapter 7, uh, starting verse 41, Jesus tells the story of a moneylender with two debtors. One owed a fair bit, the other owed heaps. But they had in common that neither could pay him back. And so the moneylender decides to cancel the debts of both. Jesus then asks this question of the Pharisees who were listening to his teaching that day. Which one do you think will love him more? The one who had the smaller debt cancelled, or the one who had the greater debt cancelled. And he confronts them that day that maybe they don't love him as, as much as, as the woman who was there that day, uh, who knew that her sin was great. I think maybe sometimes when I read that, the Pharisees' sin was greater than they may have thought it was. But Jesus challenges them maybe the reason that this woman loves me more than you do is because she knows that she's been forgiven so much. So what if you're right that this person has sinned worse than you? What if you're right that they're more unworthy, in a category of especially unworthiness, even more than you are? Well, according to Jesus' logic in this parable then, then were they to accept God's grace, then they'll likely also love Jesus more than you do. And they'll join you in giving him honour and glory and praise forever and ever. So let's be praying that God would be working in our heart a desire um, that those are far from him and and that are far from us uh, would find his mercy. I got to this slide a bit too soon, sorry. But this is my litmus test. This is how I want us to consider today. Are we overflowing in grace? test yourself with this can you pray for the one who hates you who's wronged you i don't mean pray that they will treat you better that you know they'll have a change of heart towards you and turn over a new leaf i don't mean pray that they'll realize what a great and agreeable person you are i mean can you pray that they'll find god's grace can you find can you pray that they'll find mercy for their sin Can you pray that God would forgive their sin against you? Would it seem a tragedy to you were they to reject God's grace and bear the weight of their own sin? Could you bring them to church? Could you bring them to church here at Gospel Church, Minlerton? Could you? Well, if you can do these things to whatever extent, then thank God for the work that he has done in your heart because these are not our ways. These are his ways. If you can do those things to whatever extent, then God is working in your heart and and he is making you a son of your father in heaven. See, the heart of Jesus just beats differently to all that, doesn't it? Let's have a look here comparing uh, Jesus' response to Jonah's. Jonah goes out from the city and he watches, hoping to see it fall. Jesus, on drawing near to Jerusalem, sees their great sin and he weeps for it. Then he goes into the city to die for the very people who oppose him. You see, when Jesus said that he'd come to fulfill the law and the prophets, This is that fulfillment at work. Jonah, quite unmoved, came with a message of repentance and mercy. Jesus, moved to tears, came to pay for that mercy. And we, brothers and sisters, we are called to be the hands and feet, not of Jonah, but of Jesus in the world today. You see, God is calling us away from the vine-centred life, away from indifference, away from our pitilessness, away from hatred, away from unwilling to reach those that we have deemed the unworthy. You see, when we partner in the gospel, God is not just working through us, but he's working in us, he is reshaping us and transforming us to overflow with His grace and mercy that we might be sons of our Father in heaven. How might that look as we go out this week? What has God revealed in your heart that needs transformation? Who is God revealing to you that you need a heart change toward today? You know, I might just give a moment now for you just to seek God in silent prayer and ask him to speak to you and and to give, um, to show you who that person is and to give that heart change that can only come from him. Please take a moment now to pray. Friends, God is gracious and he is merciful. He wants us not just to receive that grace and mercy. He wants us to be transformed by that grace and mercy. And he wants us to overflow in it to a world who so desperately needs it. In concluding today, I want us to consider God's grace as being transformative grace. As as confessed by Jonah and as described by God Himself, God is gracious and He is merciful. He is slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, then please do so today. This is the God who reaches out to you in grace and mercy, in unimaginable patience. And if you have, then it's by this grace and mercy that he has saved you today. Yeah, I do want to challenge that we sometimes find in our hearts that we would withhold that mercy from others who need it as much as we do. So it's by this same grace and mercy that he is now at work in us, transforming us, that our hearts might be like his, that we might overflow with his grace and mercy to a people far from him. Are people who don't know their right hand from their left? Could that be how we see those who hate us, who are far from us, who hate God this week? People who don't know their right hand from their left, and could we look on them with with pity and a desire that they might find God's mercy, as God is gracious and merciful. He wants us not just to receive that grace and mercy, but to be transformed by it and to overflow in it. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, we thank you for your great grace and mercy in our lives that you would take us, people who did not know their right hand from their left, people who are so far from you, And that you would do so great a thing for Jesus in bearing the weight of our sin. In living the life that we should have lived, in dying the death that we deserve to die. In rising again to conquer death, Lord, that you would do such a thing to bring us back to you. Lord, we come before you with just such gratitude today that you would reach out to us like that. But we come again in repentance, Lord, too, that we still find in ourselves the heart of Jonah even just a little, even just from time to time. But Lord, we pray that you would work in us transformation in our hearts. Uh, Lord, that you would give us pity for people who are far from you. You give us mercy for people who have wronged us. And that you give us deep desire uh, that they might find your grace and mercy. And that they might stand with us shoulder to shoulder, uh, worshipping you for all eternity. Lord, please make that change in us. Lord, we thank you that you work not just through your messengers, Lord, but that you are at work, at work in your messengers too. And we pray that you'll be at work in us, in our hearts this week. Lord, we pray that you would make us the active hands and feet of Jesus in our church, in our families, in our community this week. Our Lord, that... That when people encounter us and hear your message through us, uh, Lord, that they might feel not the heartbeat of Jonah, but the heartbeat of Jesus. And Lord, that they would have a chance to be changed, Lord, as you are changing us. Amen.